With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the host of the podcast and the author of the book, Bullshift. This is the podcast that talks about how the financial services industry shifts your attention to make you feel more bullish. My guest this week is Sean Brayman, and Sean was the CEO of Plan Plus, which is a financial planning software firm for over 30 years. And uh, Plan Plus was the world's only multilingual, multi-jurisdictional personal financial planning software, and it was used by several thousands of users in over 20 countries around the world. Sean has published numerous peer-reviewed scientific papers, and as a result, has received several research and best paper awards. Throughout his career, he was a regular speaker at conferences globally, covering topics like the role of and value of research, global trends in financial planning, technology, and regulation. John, welcome. Good morning, John. It's, I'm uh, happy to be here. It's funny. Uh, uh, viewers should know that Sean and I have been friends for nearly 30 years, so it's, uh, it's a real pleasure that I can finally get you. I've been chasing you down for a while trying to get you on the podcast, but you're usually out on a boat somewhere on the high seas, and uh, now, that you're back in, now that you're back in Canada, it's good to be able to pull you in. What can I say? I was happy to come back, even if I had snow uh, on arrival. There you go. The main reason I wanted to, to talk to you, Sean, was uh, in your capacity as the uh, lead author on a paper written for the Ontario Securities Commission almost a decade ago for the Investor Advisory Panel, the IAP. And it was a paper with regard to risk profiling and uh, the risks associated with uh, uh, risk questionnaires, risk tolerance questionnaires for the public. Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe begin by maybe offering up a quick overview of the research, how you did it methodologically, but also maybe a very quick rundown of what the findings were as well. Okay, it was, uh, as you know, 125 page research report. We had, I, I put together a team, including some of the uh, top academic researchers in the field, Dr. John Grable, uh, Michael Finke, um, the, it included uh, Ellen Besner here in uh, Canada from the regulatory perspective. And basically, it, two sides to it. One was we did a global review of all of the literature and regulation um, in many countries relating to the process of risk profiling um, a client to try to understand what's the state of the art. And academically, what do does the research say, say the state of the art is? And then at a practical level, um, we did, I guess you, in the end, it turned into secret uh, shopping or whatever they call that, where no one would give us <laughs> their risk tolerance questionnaires to look at. So we went in and got them under, had to look at the, call it the scoring mechanisms under them and so on and where we could, but basically we found that uh, the, the vast majority of risk questionnaires being used in the industry in Canada 
um, were uh, blatantly broken in a number of ways, um, things that are, are pointed out in the literature you shouldn't do and they're done or just like bad questions, bad scoring, bad, bad structure. I think I think uh, the paper said that only about one out of every six questionnaires was fit to purpose and actually did a reliable job of measuring what it purported to measure. Well, and in a lot of cases, I, I would say we couldn't even on any of them confirm fit for purpose because to right. do that scientifically, you actually need to be able to look at the client data and try to say, okay, what well, what's happened here, right? It's more than just the raw questionnaire, but with the amount of information that we had, we could tell that the doorway in, the, the process for trying to assess risk tolerance was badly flawed and usually driven by well-intentioned, but uh, portfolio and product sales channels and not driven by what we've learned academically um, over the now decades. Yeah. It's ironic because my previous book, Stand Up to the Financial Services Industry, talks about precisely that. Good intentions. No one's, no one's casting aspersions on what we're trying to do. The fact of the matter is, despite the good intentions, we're, we're not doing what we're setting out to do. And we need to go back to the drawing board. And I, I think that's the industry has been slow to do that. There's a certain amount of groupthink and safety in numbers. And as long as everyone else is doing something relatively similar... So let's get into this. Uh, part of what you talk about is that the risk profile, the, uh, the, the questionnaire, the process, it's complex, it's fraught with inconsistencies, you can uh, change the language and, and different firms use different terminology, sometimes the terminology is not defined. And so as a result, uh, people think they're getting a very similar question, but in fact, uh, they, they could actually lead to very different outcomes. When you think about that, what does that cause you to to believe with regard to portfolio construction and portfolio recommendations? Do you think advisors are making recommendations that are really in line with the client's risk profile, or is it possible that they might be um, wildly out of line or somewhere in between? Um, so I, I guess what I do is I'd, I'd um, probably say unlikely wildly out of line, but it's kind of, if, if you think about it, like the difference if you walked in um, to your doctor and uh, the doctor put their hand on your head and said, oh, your temperature is um, whatever, 98.95 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. And let me feel your, oh, and your blood pressure is X. And they don't use instruments. You'd go, boy, oh boy, either that's a magical doctor or that they're bullshifting me, right? And uh, to steal your term. And, yeah. and the reality is that there are there is a phenomenally strong body of knowledge academically, globally, on how we measure a client's tolerance for risk. It's a science. It's a science like a lot of the other pieces, but our financial industry isn't predisposed to applying science. <laughs> They're predisposed to, uh, how do I sell things with the least amount of friction? I don't want to ask the client too many questions because then I'll lose their interest. Or I'm constrained by the regulator or my compliance officer, you know, or my firm that I must do it this way. 
So the reality is our, our first and biggest problem is that we're, we're winging it uh, with great experience and great intent, but people are not necessarily going back to the underlying research to confirm what does work, right? What type, you know, there are uh, behavioral tests, there are psychometric tests, there's looking at um, not a behavioral test, but behavior itself. If I look at your transactions, there's different ways of coming at this. And the science has done great studies that tell you which ones work and which ones don't. I could almost guarantee you that the number of advisors that have read that research is minuscule. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things you point out is that the psychometrics is important and uh, it certainly could improve. Uh, it, I'm, I'm wondering if you could offer your thoughts about um, this academic guidance, both uh, subjective and objective. What, how, how, how would you get firms, or even if it's not firms, advisor by advisor, because a lot of firms will have a blanket policy and then leave it to the advisor to run his or her practice as they see fit. And as long as they're broadly within the, the broad parameters, how would you encourage uh, advisors to be more attuned to the psychometric aspects of the risk tolerance questionnaires they're administering? So, so let me step back one and take even that, that term, risk tolerance questionnaires. One of the things we pointed out in the study in 2015 is the industry it talks about their questionnaires like it's measuring risk tolerance. But in the science, as you know, there are different pieces. There is my risk tolerance, which is a psychological attribute that I have, right? There is my capacity for loss. There are mechanisms that even when I combine all of these things with my goals, how do I then map that into what is a suitable level of risk in the portfolio, right? And each of those pieces, what ends up happening is that quite often people, advisors or firms, build questionnaires to get them all in, all the questions the regulator says they need to ask into one questionnaire. And instead of breaking it up and saying, no, John, I, I have a valid, scientifically rigorous tolerance test for me to understand your propensity, your willingness to take risk. I have strong processes that are tied to financial planning to understand your capacity for loss. If we get bad outcomes, are you still gonna be surviving and not eating dog food, right? right. So, so we, we have these, these pieces, but again, for the sake of simplicity and onboarding clients, people aren't following what I think is clearly stated research, right? Including that study we did in 2015 in differentiating those pieces, right? And yeah. measuring them with the right ruler or the right tool, right? As opposed to a simple questionnaire that's easy to use and right. magically drops my client into a wristband so that I can then implement my portfolios and move along. It's like measuring to see how tall your child is using uh, an elastic band. You know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really measure with any kind of meaningful accuracy. Right. But what I'd say is there, you, that's not true on the individual components. 
there is scientifically validated many times over research on psychometric testing of your tolerance that it exists right it's not an elastic band it it's consistent over time so test retest you'll get the same answer it doesn't matter matter if the markets are going up and down or what's happening right that's that is it, it is a fact we can determine about the client and there are strong methodologies for the other pieces what happens is it's like a stew if you throw all the components into one pot and you're not looking at how much you're putting in or how they intermix and then you say what's in the stew can you reverse engineer this for me right or get the same answer not gonna happen right, right. so so use there are tools that are not elastic bands that do proper measures and advisors as professionals with a fiduciary interest should be using those tools that's it I, I should add that uh, about 14 months ago, uh, in January of 2023, uh, a new regulator came into a force in Canada called CIRO, and they uh, brought in the new CFR, the client-focused reforms. And these client-focused reforms, among other things, talked about uh, a, a, a dual test with regard to suitability, and that is both risk tolerance and risk capacity. So tolerance is the, the the psychological ability to withstand to to deal with risk, and capacity is the ability to you know to pay your bills and to and to deal with things over time. And what they have said is that whenever if you get, if you test them individually, let's just sort of say one comes in as an eight out of ten and the other comes in as a six out of ten, the portfolio construction must always be in line with the more conservative of the two. So if your tolerance is eight out of ten, but your capacity is six out of ten, the portfolio should be a six out of ten portfolio, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I'm not going to go into the specifics, but uh, it, just so that the people listening at home can can think about well where the rubber hits the road, what 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 are the tests that advisors are being held to? That's the way regulators, in their wisdom, and I'll use the word wisdom sort of in in air quotes, um, uh, have chosen to uh, to draw the line. Do you believe there are uh, that there's enough universal understanding with regard to the terminology we've been bandying about for the past 15 minutes? Do you believe everyone understands what risk tolerance and risk capacity is, what risk aversion is, uh, and and you know, the the need to be able to pay their bills? And I'm talking about all the all the stakeholders, um, the regulators, mm -hmm. the advisory firms with the compliance department, the advisors, and I suppose most importantly. The people that are completing these questionnaires so clearly not it's like any body of knowledge as it continues to grow and expand it takes a while to to, to work its way out and and as i've said I, I think the problem is that the um our industry and i'm going to say industry not profession right yep. I, i'd like to believe that there's a difference between a profession of financial planning but our industry is is product portfolio compensation driven, say what you will, right? And, and it's how do I keep the products out there and stay within the regulatory guidelines for selling those products, right? And everybody's jockeying about as to the actual delivery of advice as a financial planner, right? So you've got FP Canada providing oversight, you know, to the certified financial planners and, and uh, IQPF or or what is it, IFP, um, 
now. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that that um, no, uh, in general, people are not all understanding the various components, right? And their businesses don't require them to, which is un unfortunate. Their businesses require them to meet the directives of the um, of the of the regulator of the products that they're selling, right? So that'll change hopefully. But but as you said, we did this study in 2015. Parts of it, and I say parts of it, came through um, about four or five years later, but. The entire initiative got derailed as governments changed and the regulator switched uh, direction. And again, you know, a bit a bit more of it has come out now, but it's it's a continual political trade-off between what people might know is academically the right thing to do and all the stakeholders that don't want to complicate their computer systems and their onboarding processes and so on, right? It's got me thinking about um, a paper that I referenced in uh, in standup, which is the misguided beliefs of financial advisors. It's the same sort of thing. <clears throat> that paper came out in late 2016, so again, uh, seven or eight years ago, mm -hmm. and it showed very clearly that advisors believe things that are demonstrably untrue. And yet, as far as I can tell, uh, we're now heading toward close to a decade since the paper was released, and and regulators have done nothing to change their their processes to disabuse people of, of, of false beliefs. And as a result, they, they persist. And, and it, it's very frustrating because there's a saying in, in, uh, in that, that's sort of funny, but it's also a bit sad with regard to regulatory change in Canada. And that is that when all is said and done, more will be said than done. <laughs> and and uh, so much has been said over the years and so many papers have been written but in terms of meaningful uh, constructive change, there really hasn't been a lot. One of the things that I enjoyed from the paper was there's a definition of risk tolerance that you use, which is a variation in future spending. And I had never thought of risk tolerance in that way, uh, but uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe offer your thoughts on on risk tolerance in particular and if if you're so inclined you may or may not choose to contrast that a little more starkly with risk capacity okay i'm trying to remember that quote and whether where where it uh, came from which uh, where where we uh um which paper because we we sourced as you know a lot of um material but so so um tolerance basically is willingness as we said which is fundamentally simple analogy i jump on a roller coaster and it's got a lot of big ups and downs and a couple loop the loops am i gonna woof my cookies try to jump off because i can't handle the ride right and we know the volatility related to investing and so on there's a ride and it's up and down and sideways and it's always changing right we always hear people saying oh it's different now than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I'm I'm a believer in long-term trends, but nonetheless. So, so that's basically trying to say, do I know relative to the rest of say the Canadian universe, where Sean is, is he, is he more of a risk taker or less of a risk taker? 
know, even if, so that's my tolerant or my, my, my tolerance piece. Now for capacity, even if I'm willing to take the risk, right? And say the markets do take that big dip down that we were expecting and I'm retired and I have to cash out money to live on during that period of time and it decimates my retirement funds. And all of a sudden my nice 30 year retirement plan looks like it got hit by a friggin' atom bomb, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so it doesn't matter that I could tolerate the downswing. I wasn't gonna jump ship and sell in the down market, but I had to, right? I, I had to cash out, not because of my psychology, but because of my cash flow. And now all of a sudden I'm in bad, bad trouble. So what that says is Sean didn't have the capacity for loss, even though his psychology would have let him ride out the, the storm, he didn't have enough money to make it happen. And I think that's why the regulator, and, and I think that this was pointed out in our study, why the regulator looks at the two pieces and says, doesn't matter if you got the tolerance, if you haven't got the capacity, right. or if you got a lot of money and you, you can, you know, you can cash flow anything that doesn't help, you know, mean you can be in, a, in high risk investments. If you're going to freak out, jump out, sell the stuff in a down market and crystallize all the losses. So right. there's two distinct triggers and we have to look at them separately, right? right. Not merge them together and say, I'm going to take two times your risk tolerance plus your capacity and divide it by four and pretend that I have a number that makes sense, right? It's right. apples and oranges. Could you comment on the observation that the less financially literate you are, the less reliable is your self-assessment? And, and I think to me, that strikes me as being a very severe limitation of any questionnaire because usually the people who need financial advice seek it out because they're aware of their own limitations. But if those limitations cause them to do an inadequate job of the discovery process of, of quantifying their tolerance and capacity, all you're doing is, is, is finding a way to justify something which, which might still be incorrect and you wouldn't be any wiser. So I'm gonna start with a, another uh, quote bullshit. There is no academic um, evidence that I have seen anywhere on the planet Earth that links um, either my uh, my um, investment knowledge, right, or um, my uh, wealth to a properly constructed, scientifically validated risk profiling or risk tolerance exercise. So they, that statement, wherever it came from, is just a fallacy. It is not true, right? Um, and in fact, there was a great study done a couple of years after our paper um, by uh, a European group. Um, and what they did is they took 1,500 people, all demographic sizes and shapes, um, that had never done any of these questionnaires before. And they put them through 39 different forms of psychometric tests. In other words, stated, where I say, this is what I want, my stated preferences. Um, so there was a bunch of those. There was a bunch of the revealed preference behavioral tests. 
And there was a bunch of tests where they're actually looking at, say, the investing or trading behavior of the people. So their actual behavior, which is all trendy and, and happy now, right? That's the big thing people are after with big data. And what they found is that, one, the psychometric tests, as far as a scientific measure, um, were consistent over time, right? And that, in fact, all of this research demonstrated there was, in fact, a psychological, verifiable psychological attribute for tolerance for risk, which was validated by all of these things. So, so I guess to answer your question, it's crap. <laughs> they, it's, it's not true, right? A good scientific test is a good scientific test, period. And they exist and they are there to be used, some of them free. Like the Grable-Litton test is one of the, the top psychometric tests and it's free sitting on the, the Rutgers University website and has been for like a couple decades, but it's, it's not convenient for people because <laughs> they want it all to be tied into their onboarding system. Wow, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I wanted to tie uh, what I've been talking about to prospect theory. A lot of people will know there's a long section about prospect theory in Bullshift. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Kahneman and his research partner, Amos Tversky, uh, pioneered prospect theory and, and the, the notion of specifically how people's attitude toward risks change as their portfolios go up and down. But the main aha moment is that people feel the pain of a loss twice as acutely as they feel the joy of a gain. Do you think portfolios are being constructed today with any thought whatsoever being given to prospect theory? So, so let me break that into, to, again, a couple of pieces. I can't give you a simple answer to anything. Okay. Right? That's why you got me on here. So, so and first off, I'll mention, I saw uh, Daniel Kahneman. He was the uh, keynote speaker at FPA in, I think it was like 1990 in Boston had to be one of the best presentations I've ever seen. The whole, everybody was rolling in the, in the aisles, laughing at his anecdotes and so on. And, and I love his, his work, you know, all great and important stuff. Um, but that said, um, uh, when we look at system one and system two thinking, so my system one is my, my subconscious gut reaction, immediate, Yep, yeah, rules of thumb. there you go. And then um, my system two is when I burn more calories and my brain works harder and I make a more thoughtful decision, right? And we all know that our brains, the little guys that they are, burn up 25% of the entire calories of our body and it tries to be efficient and say, okay, wherever possible, make a decision with system one because you don't have to think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, rather than going to system two, all, all perfect and, and good stuff. But I am hired as a financial planner to get your properly informed consent. The research has shown that fundamentally, again, your stated preferences are in fact consistent over time. I'm, I'm not discounting all of the stuff about prospect theory, but but they're, they're consistent over time. And when you make a plan, a financial plan, right? 
you, you are consciously, if I've informed you correctly about the risks related to it, we've looked at the capacity, we've assessed your, your tolerance for risk, right? Then, then that is the right thing. And yes, there will be moments when, you know, COVID hits and the market drops or whatever, where you will maybe have a quick startle reaction and go, oh, whatever. But I am not constructing my portfolios for those moments. I'm there as a planner to help you through those moments and say, John, this is why we went through all the ups and downs. This is no different than, than ever before, right? Because otherwise I'm cheating you, right? Of potential returns, right? To meet your goals. If I'm trying to build everything down to the lowest common denominator of, of a, uh, you know, a knee-jerk reaction, that's not the way to construct a portfolio or run a plan. And, Again, a, a, another simple example I'd give is, you know, I, I have a, a son-in-law. I, I don't think he'll be upset. Deathly feared of heights, right? You know, um, but you know that doesn't mean that if his cat is stuck up on the roof, that he won't get a ladder and overcome his fears, his system one fear of heights and do the things that he needs to do, right? And as a planner, I'm here to help you, one, understand what's going on, two, make the right, well-considered decisions for your life, and then do everything I can to keep those extraneous system one moments from overwhelming you, right, in, in what you're doing. Can I ask you to maybe provide a specific uh, example in light of one thing that I know that that's in the paper that that is really important, and that is you you show that we systematically overproject our ability to subvert our emotional, which is to say negative system one uh, response. So we, we oftentimes people think, oh, I can handle a downturn, and they'll they'll answer the questionnaire saying, oh yeah, I can handle the thirty percent downturn because it's uh, it's abstract and it's in the distant future. But when the time comes and they actually have to deal with a 30% downturn, they find that they in fact cannot. How would you help people? That's part of why I was asking about prospect theory because I think you know, my concern, one of the things I talk about bullshift and I asked the question mm -hmm. three or four times semi-rhetorically uh, about, is it always right to hold? And, and if you're gonna be the kind of person who's gonna sell, and no one knows, no one can time markets, but if you're gonna be the kind of person who sells, maybe the best thing to do is to sell when you start to feel the pain rather than dealing with a, a, more pain three, four months down the road and now the market is 15% lower than it was in February. And you know, now it's May and the market is that much lower again. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you gonna do with it? And I'm not, I'm asking open-endedly. I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I, 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 I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I don't think people ask that question often enough. Right. So one, I, I read your book when it uh, first came out, I think just, uh, and, and yeah. quite enjoyed it. Good book. And I think yeah. like all of the things we're talking about, what's important is to um, take these concepts and social, get people to understand them, talk about them, think about them, right. And how it's impacting both how they as 
a professional are, are reacting and what they do with their clients. So, so that's all, all um, great. But again, what I would go back to is we've got a chicken and egg problem. Um, I can tell you from years of experience that the, the and looking at, again, thousands of, of advisors, we use what, what and owned at the end, Finometrica, which is um, a world-class psychometric risk tolerance questionnaire. And the number of clients um, that react unexpectedly and negatively in a downturn I, 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 it's probably the fingers of one hand. Um, and a lot of it comes down to, again, if you look at the industry as a whole and we're not using the proper tools to properly categorize and to properly frame what the nature of loss means, either to you individually or, again, one of the things we did is we looked at, you know, on this type of portfolio, you would be on average spending uh, 35% of the time you'd be seeing the market drop <laughs> and another 20% you would be seeing it recover, right? And less than one, half the time would the market actually be going up to a new high, right? Yeah. So, and if you can't live with that, with that 35% watching it go down, you're, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong portfolio, right? So, so the reality is, again, I'd say if we get that part better, right, never perfect, but better for the vast majority of Canadians, we will, in fact, they, they, there will not be bad surprises. And we do not have to um, uh, trim everything back in the fear that that it's going to happen. And, and again, I... I don't want to bullet. There's a difference between individual advice, where I think the behavioral stuff is most important, is broad societal trends. If you want to manipulate an election, or you want to target um, advertising, right? Then what they are is phenomenally good at letting me find a percentage of individuals that are better suited to my product, right? Or better suited to my message, right? But when it comes to individual advice, we should be providing individual advice, not behavioral averages as the guiding principles. Excellent. That's a great way to go to the uh, wrap up here. So let's move to the uh, what we always like to end with, which is uh, that's bullshit. If it was up to you, Sean, what would you change in the financial services industry? Industry, not profession. Right. Um, so, so let me say again, and and I'm now retired, right? And and thinking, oh my gosh, if anyone had told me when I started this journey in like 1984, 85, that I would be sitting here, and it would be so much like it was then driven by insurance premiums and portfolio and product fees, I would have just said, I've got better things to do with my life, right? Um, I believe that if the, the end, so to answer your question, um, I would ban product level compensation for financial planners. I don't care about 
product salespeople or whatever, but for financial planners, I would just say, no matter your best intentions, you are conflicted the moment your, your compensation is structured by the products and your, your way you run your business is structured by those regulators, right? That, that would be it. So then shift happens. How would you go about solving that problem of, of having financial planners in particular uh, still in a position where they can recommend products that have an embedded compensation? Um, okay, well, there's two or three things mixed into that. So, yeah. so one the was, mixing. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one was um, you you use the the assumption, and I get it that um, advisors sell products with um, financial planners sell products with embedded compensations, and that's because the industry doesn't care about planners; they care about selling their products. Right. But if enough of the planners and the channels actually say, no, I need to disentangle this bullshit shit um, that is, is how I'm compensated, right? And you need to provide me products without compensation built in, right? Or I need another way of, of um, going to someone else to do the, the implementation. Let me say there are a growing number of young people, more in the States, not in Canada because of the structure, that are doing proper fee-based financial planning for clients, sending them to you know, a robo-structure for portfolio implementation, right? So it's not that it can't be done, it's just that it's not as profitable and it isn't being done. Sean, you, you're such a wonderful person to talk to. I, I, I always enjoy our conversations. We've gone on a bit longer than I go with most other guests because there's, you've just got so much info to impart. It's wonderful. I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, John, for having me and uh, look forward to the next time our paths cross. Cheers. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book, Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.